Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Time for another edition of Locked On NBA. I'm David Locke. So excited to have you with us. We're going to have a fun show today because today I want to introduce you to someone. We've had Chad Ford on and we've had our our, uh, unique uh, guys, the front office, the coach, the scouts. But today is one of the up-and-coming writers in the NBA. I mean, we all know Zach and all these other guys. But there's a guy who's writing for The Ringer who I've been reading for a while on his blog named Jonathan Sharks. And he is just he's just great. Sharks is just does amazing work, great understanding of the game. And he's getting exposed to The Ringer. He's like a Bill Simmons find. So he's our guest today. Uh, you might not know the name when you saw the podcast, but trust me, the insight is, is really interesting. We'll talk about up-and-coming teams, the draft, uh, free agency, head-scratch moves just babble about basketball it's, it's going to be really it's a good basketball conversation trust me i think you'll join enjoy it you'll follow him you'll read him on the ringer and say you knew him in one uh by the way today's show is brought to you by mac weldon uh i have to admit i get a little too excited when the mac weldon box came the other day i'm wearing my mac weldon t-shirt right now uh smart design premier fabrics simple shopping easily done for underwear socks shirts undershirts hoodies sweatpants it's all great uh check it out they do great work and use the promo code locked and you get 20% off. That's at MacWeldon.com. All right. Thank you very much for tuning in, subscribing at iTunes. The five stars are all great. It is all part of the Lockdown Podcast Network. Check out your favorite NBA team podcast is there on the Lockdown Podcast Network. If it's not there now, it will be soon. Subscribe to those as well on iTunes. And your favorite Lockdown NFL coming soon as well. As I mentioned today, our guest is The Ringer's Jonathan Charks. I have been a fan for a while. I'm a little bummed out that he's at The Ringer. I'm not going to lie to anyone personally because it's all about me. Uh, I used to be a, uh, an avid reader of the pattern of basketball. I have about seven, eight links that have to be checked. It's under NBA Must Reads. And the pattern of basketball is Jonathan's old blog spot uh, article that was out there and just wrote incredible great pieces with great depth. Um, you know, Miles Turner versus Jalil Okafor last year was probably one of his best, he wrote, uh, breaking down certain players and why, in a, in a very strong belief on what makes good basketball. Uh, the Ringer noticed it, hired him. That's good for you, the listener. That's good for you, Jonathan. It's bad for me because I've lost my secret source of basketball knowledge. But, Jonathan, congratulations, uh, and uh, I'm really excited for the rest of the country to get to realize what a great basketball writer you are. Well, I appreciate that. I don't know about it great, but I'll take it anyways. And you work at the Ringer under Bill Simmons, who we all know is a huge NBA guy. Is that just a, a fabulous environment for a basketball junkie? Oh, absolutely. They give me a lot of freedom there. I mean, it's been a great environment. I can't – I recommend it enough. So before we get started, Jonathan, sticking with the locked-on NBA tradition and in honor of the great baseball movie, Bull Durham, I must ask you, what do you believe in? I'm going to go with the golden rule, man. 
treat others as you want to be treated. I don't follow myself all the time, but I try. And I think that's there's no greater commitment than love your love your neighbor like you love yourself. All right, let's dig into some of the fun stuff. The biggest jump. All right, we all know the NBA. I don't think moves. There aren't going to be many moves that change the landscape from here on out. What franchise is in the most dramatically different position, positively, of any franchise? Uh, that was before the free agency and the draft started? I mean, this is kind of cheating, but I'm going to say the Warriors. Even though they were the best team in the West, going from Paris and Barnes to Kevin Durant is such a jump in a positive direction. I still think it's worth mentioning. I look at it a lot like, you know Alice in Wonderland, the Red Queen's race? Yeah. Where it's like, you have to run really fast to stay in place. And the Warriors, they were getting older. Iguodala was getting older. Bowie was getting older. And now they had this massive jump from Barnes to Durant. I think just totally changes their trajectory for the next four or five years. And I think it is, I mean, for as much as they're on top, I think that is, they put so much, they put so much distance between them and number two, it's worth pointing out. For no reason, they killed their main adversary. Like, that alone is incredible. Like, they just eliminated a main threat in the West for the near future. The so I I can't really place devil's advocate because I don't think there is one, but I mean I am reading you know I was reviewing some stuff today I was actually looking at the Mavericks, I mean Bogut still is like defensive plus minus number one, some of those things is there how much concern is there of how thin that team is and particularly how thin that team is around the rim. I mean I do think the Draymond thing is a concern. Like the Durant thing I think makes the injuries to Steph less concerning. But definitely Draymond is now the main issue. If he can be hurt, if he can be injured, the whole thing falls apart. So that's obviously a concern. I do think Zaza and West help as regular season guys. They'll come in there, take a few beatings, get in a few fights, and keep Draymond you know, somewhat, up, somewhat upright. But it seems to me the way to attack them now is to go at Draymond even more in the playoffs and just hope he can crack one way or the other. You know, I'm going to use a football analogy that people don't really remember, probably, but there was a middle linebacker on the Seattle Seahawks named Lofa Tutupu who slid in the draft very similar to Draymond because he was undersized. He ended up being all pro, very similar to Draymond, but he ended up having a shorter career. The fact that he didn't have the measurables, which was all the reasons he slipped and everything like that, ended up rearing their ugly head just as his career progressed because he broke down. It reminded me a little bit of Carlos Boozer, who fell off the map incredibly fast. And it was not a case that he – it's just that he didn't have the measurables. Is there any concern on Draymond that he's more susceptible to fatigue or some other aspects because he doesn't have the measurables? I mean, I think definitely. I think that's why you saw them bring in Zaza, even though by far their best lineup will be Draymond at the five. It's like, it's like maybe it's kind of like another cross-sport analogy. When you have those baseball pitchers who have the 100-mile-hour fastball, and they're throwing it, and it's awesome, but you know their arm is a ticking time bomb because they have this incredible weapon that's in the end is going to take care of itself eventually. So I do think a little bit the Warriors trying to like save the juice so they can squeeze out Draymond at the five as much as possible. The other question I asked, just kind of hypothetically, is do we have any idea like what the best possible – is there a maximum to offensive efficiency? Is there some level where just the game of basketball doesn't yield you to be any better offensively than 
I don't know, the Warriors were last year or Dallas was for half a season. What do you think the maximum level of offensive efficiency actually is? I would assume, I would look at it like, you look at the players in the lineup, like I would assume probably if you had five elite three-point shooters, then one or two elite drivers who could get them get them the ball and the ball moving. So, But maybe Golden State has reached that point, but the thing is, Adding Durant also improves them defensively, too. Like, you saw what he did to them in the conference finals. He can really be a dynamite defender. He's longer than Harrison Barnes. He's faster than Harrison Barnes. And he's a better, higher IQ player, too. So that, I think, is the under, underrated element of the addition, is now you have Durant and Draymond causing havoc as small ball front court defenders. Is Harrison Barnes a good basketball player? Oh, man. I think I'm going to find out the hard way watching on Dallas the next four years. I'll say uh, he's a decent basketball player. He can fill a role on a good team. Is he going to be good enough in a primary role? I've, I have my doubts. I think probably his best case scenario is a small ball four where he can kind of spot up off the ball, defend bigger players, switch screens. Pretty much not always going to be in Dallas. He's it. Rick Carlisle factor, though, there always plays into some level. Uh, and the brilliance of what Carlisle is able to do with everybody who ever plays for. Yeah, I mean, that's that's true as far as it goes. But let's let's keep it real. How many playoff games have the Mavs won in the last five years? Like six or seven? They want a playoff series. There's only so much Rick can do. You know, he's not a wizard. He's just a man. Sometimes I wonder, but I would generally agree with you. We'll continue more with Jonathan in just a second, but let me tell you about Mac Weldon. Frankly, it's better than whatever you're wearing right now. Uh, the Mac Weldon shipment came the other day. I, I admit it. I was too excited, too excited about underwear arriving, but they've got fabulous stuff. They've got a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally designed to make it so that the odor goes away. That's awfully nice. I'm wearing a Pima Cotton t-shirt right now. It does. It just feels differently. It's just better than anything else you've worn. I love the boxer briefs because they're done in the cotton that's comfortable, but then they have a tightness on the thigh so they're not riding up the whole time that you're wearing them. Uh, it makes a big difference. I, it's probably more about me and talking about underwear than you want, but it's nice. I played golf in mine the other day. Never once bothered me. Uh, another day, I actually just wore it all day long, like my boxer briefs, and I'm a boxer guy. But they're fabulous. So check it out, MacWeldon.com. And if you use the promo code LOCKED, you get 20% off. One of the fun things to do is also they do packages. So there's like the crisp package. You'll see it there. They do it all. Underwear, socks, shirts. They all perform well. They look good. They're crazy comfortable. It's worth checking out. And maybe the real thing that you need to know is you know they'll refund it if you don't like it like it there's really no risk involved there so uh check it out macweldon.com and i really think you'll find out that the premium fabrics the simple ease of shopping uh you're going to be very very pleased use the promo code locked macweldon.com i strongly suggest the boxer briefs because I told you why. You don't need that again. I love the Pima T-shirts. There's also the silver ones that take the odor. There's long sleeves as well. The sweats uh, are super comfortable there. It's it's just terrific. Check it out. It's better than anything you're wearing right now. It's really that, it's, it's that simple. Go to MacWeldon.com. 20% off. Use the promo code LOCKED. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You think about the, the Harrison Barnes signing. Everything was just justified inside of this new salary structure, but I've talked, I was just at Summer League, and I've talked to GMs beforehand, and their point to me was, this league's actually no different than it's ever been before. 
you used to have two and a half, three guys on max salaries, and you were filling out the final 25% of your salary cap with the other, the other 10 players on your roster. And their point is it's no different now. So bad contracts are still bad contracts, and bad max contracts are even worse than they've ever been before. So if the, Dallas is wrong on Harrison Barnes, how painful is that? Well, I look at it more it's like, where else are they going to spend the money? I think the, the main thing is, like, there's still only so many elite players worthy of that kind of money to begin with. So you have a lot of like, good money chasing bad players, and that probably hasn't changed. But I think the issue for Dallas isn't so much giving Barnes all that money. It's that they had no better place to spend it. No, I still think they should have kept Parsons. I, I only, my only thing must be his knees must be worse than letting on to let him walk with the Harrison Barnes at the same price. Uh, I can't get specific, but I will tell you at summer league that that was what that was some of the discussions that I um, that were had were was the idea that um, that it's almost fifty fifty on what happens with his legs. I mean, yeah, you just look at how it went down. He was. I almost wonder if they rushed him back last year. I guess it's hard for me to judge us from the outside. It feels very hindsight twenty twenty. But it was always kind of weird the whole way it all played out. Like, if you look at the timeline for his injury two years ago, he's out for two weeks of the playoff starts. Then he plays one game, and they have the surgery. So either A, he was rushed back too soon, and he re-injured himself, or B, he's never been playing in the first place, or C, they were being careful, and then things gave out again. I mean, it was all very questionable from the start, how that went down in Dallas. The last piece you wrote on The Ringer was about the Utah Jazz. There's an interesting element to what the Jazz have done. They, they went and have their youth, and they just surrounded it with a pretty high-level 30-year-old point guard, but also a 35, two 35-year-olds in Boris Diaw and in Joe Jackson. How do we look at guys as the age and try to figure out when they fall off the cliff when a guy like Joe Johnson, who went from being the primary option in Brooklyn for the first half of last year disastrously, will now be like the seventh guy in Utah, how, how do we look at those guys and figure out whether that can be successful or not as they age? Well, I mean, I think you still got to like slotting their skill sets into smaller roles. Like I would, I would worry most about Dial. It kind of seemed like he got his contract and he let himself go a bit. And the older you get, the harder it is to come back from something like that. Whereas Joe's always been a professional. Joe's a hard worker. He's going to get his checks, get his money, punch the clock. I think, I mean, I guess it's one of those things with age. It happens, it happens, it happens really fast, right? But I do, I do feel like Joe and George Hill have a few years left where they can just shoot, play off the ball, and kind of guard lesser talented players. I don't know about Boris, though. Boris I wonder about a lot. You know, the interesting one I've charted over the years is at 35,000 regular season minutes, players start to decline. At 40,000, they're really kind of finished as primary guys. It's almost impossible to find a team that has had a primary guy at over 40,000 minutes and really hard to find. But LeBron. So, so where's LeBron at now? LeBron's at 35, 36 right now. I mean, like he's right on the edge of the last part of this um, where you would believe that he can be a primary guy to lead you to a championship. Um, at least on this match. Wow, that's now, interesting. Uh, he's actually at 38 now after this season. Um, and you when know, was where was Duncan at in 2014? Uh, and then, the then we can get into a discussion of whether he was the primary guy. 
Yeah, I guess that's true. Right, the same discussion we get into over Kevin Garnett uh, with Boston. Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, and Kevin Garnett were all very close to that. Duncan finished at 47,000, so his year going into 11-12 was the year. The beginning of 12-13 is the year he broke over 40,000. Hmm. I mean, I wonder with LeBron, that's what I was saying with Draymond, were they just going to ration those, those bursts he has left? Because obviously in the finals, he kind of went to a different level, and he had been using most of the season. So I do want to make it that's part of it, too. If you can kind of, knowing the numbers, you can kind of play the percentages and pull a guy back. Like, LeBron's obviously been pulling back a lot the last regular season. Uh, LeBron play, LeBron's last season, he played, you know, he played 200 less minutes in 76 games, and he played in 77 games two years ago in Miami. So they have definitely been yeah, that back. It's more not even like the minute usage, just the way he's been playing on the floor. But he probably should be playing fewer games, too, at this point. He was just unreal, though. Like, it, it, if there, I heard a great story uh, from someone who was around him that basically if you go back, and I don't have the series, you're probably better with your basketball history than I am. If you go back, there's a Miami-Boston series where Paul Pierce basically calls out LeBron pretty similarly to the way Clay Thompson did and Draymond did. And that LeBron walked around the Miami facility for the next whatever they were down 3-1 or down 3-2 or whatever it was and never said a word. Like he just did not say a word to anyone for that whole time period until he got them their win over Boston and then moved them on to their next series. Oh, so that was the Game 6 series yeah. where they were down they had like the 54-point or whatever? Yep. And that he just and the person who was telling the story wasn't with him in this series, but said the minute I heard them call him a bitch, uh, it was over. Like you can't do that. You can't call LeBron that. He'll just go to a different place in a different time. It was an interesting to hear someone who spent that much time around LeBron to say that about that. That's what happened in the finals. Yeah, it definitely seemed like Golden State got caught up in the whole hubris and pride comes before the fall. They were just so. They couldn't just win. They had a brother in your face, too. It really kind of felt like they needed to be humbled a bit, and they were definitely humbled this time around. Yeah, but they just asked their owner. They have the special sauce that answers all things. They know how to do everything better than everybody else. <laughs> or I'm just reason to say now he knew KD was coming, right? And that's why they're like years ahead. Who knows? Well, I think, I mean, the, K, the KD thing to Golden State's what's 14 months old? 16 months well, old? Well, according to... Ethan Strauss had all started back. It's like the Heat thing in 2010 when it was KD, Iguodala, and Steph at the World Championships. And that's where the relationship first got, first kind of got going. The, uh, let's go around uh, some of the other moves that happened, some other things that have taken place. Uh, but let me actually let me back up conceptually. We're talking about Harrison Barnes, and you made the comment of where else do you put the money? So if we just assume that there's 60 max slots in the NBA at this point, there's going to be more, but... And you, and you don't. Does that mean that sixty players have to go get them? Do you, does somebody have to give the fifty fourth best player in the league a max slot because there's sixty slot, you know, two on every team? What's your feeling on on what the right way to manage the money is if you're one of these franchises? Well, I mean, I think it's obviously worth pointing out that the top sixty players are never on the market, right? You only get on the market when you're on your third contract, or if you're lucky, your second. If the team doesn't match those. I think for me, it's really you want to get as many good players on their second contracts as possible. Cause that's really the peak of their playing ability, I would assume, is their mid-20s. So that goes back to drafting really well. So you don't have to go out in free agency and overspend for guys who are going to be the decline phase of their careers or paying for guys 
who their teams let go because they don't think they're that good to begin with, like Harrison Barnes. So you want to have those guys like when OKC had Durant and Westbrook and Ibaka on those second contracts, that's really the peak time to have the most talent. And that goes back to drafting more than anything. You wrote the piece on the Utah Jazz. What is your Why are the optimism that you have about that franchise? Well, I mean, for me, it's just I've loved their drafting for years. I think all their guys have a ton of upside left, particularly Exum, Lyles, and Hood. To me, those are all very inspired picks. And all those guys, have, I think, can be stars on an elite team. And they might not be able to be stars in Utah. So you have a ton of elite talent in smaller roles, and they could be used. And that should push the whole swing of their team forward, even without some of the smarter moves they've made in free agency, and even without guys like Hayward, Favors, Gobert, reaching their prime right now, too. When you say stars on their team, what do you mean by that? Like how- Are we talking about, like, like, like Lyles, Exum, and Hood? Yeah, like how good do you really think those guys can be? I mean, I guess player by player, by player I've always been a huge Trey Lyles fan. I mean, look at his game. He's 6'10", 250, and he played as a three in college. And like just like that combination of size and skill, and just the feel for the game is very, very high with him. And now he's hitting his jump shots. So he's got the guard on perimeter. He can guard two, three positions. He can put the ball on the floor. He can pass. To me, he could be an all level player. And then Hood... Hood's always been a really smooth, really skilled, but six eight shooting guard can shoot like that. To me, probably he's an all star level player too, eventually. Actually I think is the question, is a jumper for real? Like, obviously how much that ACL take him back. Um, how big was his role as a rookie? Was that a matter of him being a young player on a good team? Or is he better as a secondary option? I remember watching Exum and the under seventeens when he first came big in the scene. And he just um, he just carried Australia to the semifinals. He was six six. He had a very high feel for the game, good athletic ability. To me, all three of those guys are blue chip prospects. So, with those optimistic comments said, how do you see the West? Do you see Clippers and San Antonio still a notch above the rest of that group? What is the? Where do you see the West after the behemoth power at the top? Well, I mean, I think you got Golden State for sure in a category of their own. And I think for now, you have to put it at San Antonio, Memphis, and the Clippers. They have guys who've proven themselves. And I, I would put Utah right in that category, but they have to prove it right now. They have a lot of young guys with potential. Let's see them put it on the floor. Let's see them put it all the pieces together. But I feel like those apply to the four after Golden State. And then what? You've got like, then after those five, then it's kind of like a free-for-all, it seems like. Am I forgetting anybody? I don't think so. Well, it's so interesting you right? got, because you've got the young, the three teams in Minnesota, New Orleans, and Sacramento all have these transcendent talents. Now one of them's a knucklehead. But you have these incredible talents in Cousins, Anthony Davis, and Carl Anthony Towns on these teams that are supposedly on a tier below. But the, you feel like all three of those should be capable of just almost carrying a franchise. Well, I mean, I feel like Sacramento, nobody can carry that franchise. Maybe not, Le- maybe prime LeBron could have, but they've got like five centers, no point guard. I mean, they're trying Rudy Gay. They feel like two years away, being two years away. I have no faith in Sacramento anymore. New Orleans should be pretty good. I think if they can stay healthy, I like some moves they made. Minnesota's probably a year away, I feel like. They're counting on so many young players. 
Like I love Towns. Obviously, is great, but is Wiggins ready? Is Levine ready? Is Chris Dunn ready? I'm not sure if they're probably still a year away. But I would say those three New Orleans is probably the closest. And there's two big question marks about the Spurs and the Clippers. Let's touch on the first one. I, that team has just had the influence of Tim for so long. I just cannot figure out at all what I think his retirement means to their to who they are as a franchise and who they and how they play. He, you know, he still was an incredibly positive impact on the floor. Yeah, I mean, especially as a defensive player, and going from Tim to Powell is a huge jump. Because Powell can get buckets still, but his defense is really falling off. So you wonder about that a lot. And just to generally age the rest of the roster, like Tony Parker is, what, 35 now? Yeah, absolutely. Or is that too old? No, I think he's, thir- I think he's right? 34 or 35. You're within, you're within a blink of an eye. Yeah, I just wonder if they need another fast guard. I feel like that's been the kind of the hole in their team the last two years. It's just with Parker getting older. There's no real fast penetrating guard to get their offense going. And now their defense without Tim, you've got a lot of old guys up front, a lot of old guys in the back. You're asking a lot of Kawhi and Danny Green to carry that defensively. And I gotta be honest, and I think I might be wrong on this. I mean, I'm a lot. You're, you know, I'm always willing to admit that. I, Lamarcus just doesn't move my meter. It wasn't stunning to me last year. Like I missed on one level with Lamarcus. I had Portland being good even without Lamarcus last year. Uh, it didn't stun me that they did what they did. I mean, a little bit. They were bigger, better. Than I what did? Which, what I did miss is is his positive influence on San Antonio. I didn't think that was going to work that well. He doesn't move the meter as positively for me as he does for others. Well, I mean, I think with San Antonio, they needed a second bailout option with everybody else getting so old. They needed somebody else to get shots really easily, and he can do that. I mean, he's not a bad defensive player. I mean, I think he's a top 50, top 20 player in the league. I'm a fan. I don't know. You might be I'm right. not sure him and Kawhi alone are going to be enough. Right. And then the Clipper question mark is a question I asked Doc Rivers when the season started last year in one of the early press conferences. I asked him about if a collective group can have too – this was before Blake Griffin punched somebody out – whether a collective group can have too many negative experiences together to overcome it obviously with their failure in the playoffs the year before. And his answer was, that's why we changed up the roster and why we have seven new guys. Well, now he doesn't have seven new guys. Now he's virtually brought back the same roster. So the question, I think, then comes again, at what point does this collective group just no longer have a positive collective energy moving forward? I mean, my thing with them, I feel like they've always kind of had some underlying flaws. Like, for one... Their top four players, there's no versatility at all. Chris Paul's only a one. Shady's only a two. Blake's only a four. Gianna's only a five. They really can't move their lineups very much in the course of a seven-game series. There's not too much versatility there. And then you look at Chris, undersized point guard. JJ, undersized two guard. Blake, not a very long four man. DeAndre, very little skill at the five position. On top of that, no no real depth to speak of. So, like, I've never – I've always come up with them as a team that in a, in a seven-game series, they're very exploitable. And I feel like that's happened a few times now where they've had the advantage and teams have made adjustments and kind of gotten gotten the best of them when they probably should have won on paper. Look at that, that, that Thunder Series two, three years ago, the Rockets Series two years ago. They had both those teams on the brink, but they couldn't actually beat them. And I wonder if there's a ceiling on that squad where they're constructed. 
Interesting. Really, really interesting. You, you know, that's one of the things I always loved about your work at Pattern of Basketball. I always thought you had a very good understanding of versatility, kind of what I would call the new age positioning, and fits on how, you know, your Jalil Okafor point last year was just kind of how would you, how do you possibly, if I, you know, to really minimize a longer piece, how do you possibly use him on a good team? Wasn't that, I mean, wasn't that one of the things you were, kind of one of your points in that? Yeah, and I think it goes even all the way back to their college days. Like, to me, that's the big mistake most people make in the draft. They look at, like, the guy's stats, and they think it's apples to apples, but it's the farthest thing from it. It's like, what was your role in college? Who are your teammates in college? How was the team built around you? And then it's like, you look at that skill set, you bring it to the NBA, it's the same question. So just because a guy was a college superstar doesn't mean anything necessarily in the NBA, which I think we've seen a million times. But we always forget that for the next draft. You look at a guy, oh, he had 25 points a game in college. He'll be an NBA player. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, yeah, it's all, stats are all very contextual, I feel like, and especially in basketball more than anything else. The, when you talk about, so we've had this trend, I think one has become uh, defensively is the interchangeable position, which really means the big point guard. Uh, so that now all of a sudden you can you can defend multiple positions. That's been one of the major trends. Uh, the playmaking four seems to have taken away the stretch four. Do you see what's next? Do you have any feeling of what the next major areas of focus are going to be? Are you a soccer guy at all? I'm not, but I could pretend to be for a minute. Uh, okay. Well, I, I was talking to a friend the other day about this, and like he was talking about this thing called total soccer. And it was like this thing with like, I think it was Cruyff at Barcelona. And I'm probably butchering this. And I'm not a soccer guy at all. And the basic gist of it was like, Cruyff looked better like everyone should be able to play every position. So like you should be able to get all the skills at every spot. And everybody's very interchangeable. And I think it's like just total basketball. It's just like it taking what the Warriors into the next level. And so you have five guys who can do all the five things at each position on the floor. And they can all slide around. Like Carl Towns, basically. You have... Bigs can play like guards, and then guards can play like bigs. So there's more and more versatility than ever before, I think. It's interesting. Is there anything that jumps out to where particular skills will be able to exploit that in any manner? I just think, to me, it's just, I guess, like, not, not be a dead horse, just about versatility. It's, it's be able to do multiple things. So if you can't shoot, if you're not hitting your shot, can you drive? If you're not making your shot, can you pass the ball? How many spots on the floor can you guard? It's just being able to do multiple things. And I think that becomes more important in the playoffs. You see with LeBron a lot. Like, as his teams go deeper into a series, LeBron can find what his team needs and give it to him because he can do everything really, really well. So you really can't game plan for him because he can change his identity as a player over the course of a playoff series. What I think it speaks to a little bit, though, the one thing I'm trying to just think that could exploit that gets back to the value of the big, right? So if, to some extent, if you, if you have a, a, a the, if you're bigger than the other team and you're, you can maintain that versatility and, and you have a size or length advantage, that becomes then even more important if everyone's playing this versatile manner. Does that, you following where I'm going there? Yeah, I see what, I see what you're saying. It's kind of like, I was curious when like Towns was going to be in the lottery like, maybe if you could play with, like, Embiid in Philadelphia, or if you could play with Cousins in Sacramento. So, like, go back to, like, Twin Towers basketball, but with two very, very versatile big men who could high-low you to death. 
and they can switch you on defense. So it's like, if you have bigs who can, do- who can defend on the perimeter and they can punch you down low, it's like the best of both worlds. So to me, that's the question, like, what is the best kind of player to put next to Carl Towns, basically? And can you do that in Minnesota? What's your thought on that? Because it's a... Minnesota is terrifying to anybody who's in the Western Conference. Absolutely. See, I probably, if I were them, I would have wanted to get Bender at four. I guess he went four, though. Probably one with Marcus Chris. Give me two bits. You can switch screens and play inside-outside basketball. But they went with with Chris Dunn, I guess because they don't believe in Rubio. I'm not really sure what was the thought process there. I like Rubio. He only does one thing well. He helps you win. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly fun to watch, that's for sure. He's one of the most purely fun players to watch in the NBA. What were your head-scratching moves of the offseason? I mean, to me, the one that I really kind of stunned me was the Evan Turner move to Portland. Because it felt like they're bringing a guy in there who takes the ball away from CJ and Dame. It isn't great defensively either. That, that wasn't even about the money to me. It was just a fit. Like if he's is he gonna start? And if he starts, it really changes the dynamic of their team a lot. I'm not sure in a positive direction. It's interesting. I said today on my daily podcast that there were two moves in free agency I didn't like at all. And one of them was Evan Turner, the other was Mo Spates. Like I just think the guy's like the seventh highest usage rate player in the NBA. Is that right? <laughs> I, mean, I charted you fuck it, Mo? Yeah, I mean, I chart it a little differently. I do something scoring opportunities per 40 minutes, and he's like seventh in the league. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, no, I mean, at least have some idea of your time and place. The only guys that used more scoring opportunities for 40 minutes than most Spates were James Harden, or excuse me, DeMarcus Cousins, Kobe Bryant, Stephen Curry, James Harden, Michael Beasley, who gunned like I'd never seen before, Lillard, Durant, Westbrook, and Davis. That was very funny. Did you see him in summer league? He went three for 15 in his only game. I don't know why he was out there, but that was pretty amusing. I guess he likes the game enough to be out there. You know, it's interesting. There's One of the ongoing debates in the game has always been the value of the high-volume scorer. I've never bought into it. Kevin Pelton and I argue about it with some regularity. Uh, I think the high-volume scorer who is below average on his possession usage is just death to a team. So um, that's always been a bias of mine. So Mo Spates is not your primary guy, but he's a high-volume shooter who's below average in his efficiency. So I am just – I'm allergic to those players. So like Russ then. I guess Russ kind of like walks the line there a bit. He got above average in the last two years, I believe. Yeah, I mean, efficiency is always important because like – Anybody can – if you shoot a lot, you'll score a lot eventually. It's just math. But can you do it efficiently as well? That's all. I'm always an efficiency guy myself. Yep. You uh, had some very outspoken comments about these draft picks uh, that I heard on the Ringer podcast. Why don't you share those before we wrap up? Oh, man, it's hard to remember. We're just out there. We just fire off takes from those podcasts. You have to jog the memory a bit. I don't think you were a Jamal Murray fan who I do like, which is one reason I noticed I liked it. And I can't remember, but you had something about Jalen Brown. I was surprised. I can't remember which way you were on Jalen Brown. Okay, so with Jalen Brown, I think to me, he has to be in a very, very specific situation. I worry about him as, as a three. He's a great athlete, but I'm not sure he's a great steal for the game. I know he's a very good shooter. So you look at that Cal team, he's playing as a three with two big men. He's holding the ball a lot. 
not moving the ball a lot, not spacing the floor. To me, he has to be, the, he has to be a small ball four, basically. A guy who can switch screens, attack smaller at the dribble. Because he is, he can't use his athletic ability to guard bigger players. I guess he's going to be most valuable. But I just worry in the wrong system, he's going to be a ball-holding guy who doesn't face the floor or make anyone else better. So I'm really, I think he has the high ceiling, but I think he's a pretty low floor. So it'll be a lot about how he's used. As for Jamal Murray, I don't think he's very athletic. I just watched him a lot on at Kentucky, just not stay in front of guys. To me, he's just a guy who gets a lot of shots up. He doesn't, he doesn't make anybody else better. He's not a defensive player. And, like, I don't know. Is he, is he Randy Foy, Kevin Martin? That's what I look at with Jamal Murray. Be interesting to watch. We'll keep an eye on that. I loved him. I just thought he could get buckets. Uh, he was the only – You can, can get buckets. He, I, I find, every year I have a draft guy, guys I fall in love with the draft. Interestingly, you and I are similar. Uh, Trey Lyles, and it was convenient the Jazz drafted him. Trey Lyles was my guy two years ago, and I do think he's going to be great. I'm with you. Uh, I think he just scores with such ease in this league, and then he's, if he decides to rebound and defend, he's going to be fabulous. Um, but it's interesting. This year I just didn't have anybody. I mean, even – Yeah, it was, a tough, it was a tough draft. I might have Dragon Bender after watching him in the summer league. I was very impressed by him. I guess the guy I liked, underrated, was Patrick McCaw, the guy the Warriors got. I thought he was very undervalued playing for a bad team in college. I think he'll get minutes right away in Golden State. And he looked pretty good the other night in the game against the Spurs at Summer League. Like, he's six seven. He's very fast. And what I like about him is he's a defensive player, but he has a really high feel for the game. Most, like, good college defenders, they're like Tony Allen types. They don't know how to play offense or space the floor. They had no feel for attacking and creating for others. When McCall is a good defender, ain't a high feel for the game, and he could shoot. Like, to me, he was a top 15 talent. He just fell in the draft because his team sucked. His coach got fired. And, like, no one really talked about him very much. He was on a bad team in a small conference. But I thought he was a real talent. Jonathan, thanks so much for the time. Just terrific insight. Really appreciate it. You can follow him on Twitter, Jonathan. And then T-J-A-R-K-S. So Jonathan T-J-A-R-K-S. Catch him on the ringer. He does great work. Jonathan Sharks, uh, nice enough to take the time with us. Uh, really appreciate it. Look forward to reading more and more stuff. Really excited for you that the nation's going to get to realize how well you understand the game.